about. <laughs> you want to talk about that one first? Okay, we'll talk about that I don't, one. I don't. I, I'm. You know, I'm flexible. I no. got an hour and a half to kill. Oh, now I understand. <laughs> it's Jack's getting home flight. Yes. Ah. Yeah, I was. Uh, so I I got home late last what night. Are you going in a, what are you, you going through BWI for? Because that's the way Southwest routed me. Because if you want it, you know, I mean. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fine. I understand. Yeah. See. I, we've talked about this in the past. Surprisingly, there is a non-stop from Manchester, New Hampshire, to Las Vegas, Nevada. See, that, that does not surprise me. No, really. That, yeah, Vegas is is is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, one of the premier destinations, and uh, I think there was a point back in the day when I think the city fathers in Vegas actually uh, subsidized some of that. Could be. Could be. So there still is a a, a non-stop. Um, but it's at seven o'clock in the morning. It leaves here to, at, at seven o'clock in the morning, and and I passed on the opportunity to uh, <laughs> leave my house at four a.m. in order to or five a.m. in order to uh, go to Las Vegas. So um, the flights they gave me routed me through, and likewise, it was a weird time. It like returned at midnight or something like that. Um, so so I decided to, to travel through. Uh, through uh, Baltimore. Uh, anyways, um, so yesterday I was returning. I, I, it's it's Monday morning. We'll talk more about that in a second. But yeah, uh, uh, yeah. but uh, uh, I returned late last night. I actually wandered through my door at uh, twelve thirty in the morning uh, last night after a long day in the hands of the uh, uh, airline industry. And uh, part of it, a large part of it, involved a flight from Las Vegas to uh, to Baltimore on one of Southwest seven thirty sevens. And and as is my want, um, I sat in a window seat and spent a good uh, uh, part of the flight just kind of gazing out the window, watching America go by. Um, and for and maybe it's just a coincidence, all right. But normally, when I'm flying along cross country, watching out the window, I will very occasionally, maybe even not even once per cross country flight, see another airliner in the sky, hmm. um, and. Uh, so, and on this particular flight, I think I saw seven or eight other airliners while we were yeah. going cross country. I mean, just again, maybe just coincidence, coincidence. Some of them were really close. I mean, some of them passed right, appeared in my vision, you know, like coming out from underneath our airplane. I mean, as close as you can imagine them being. What's I, I, you know, I'm just guessing here, but I'll bet you they're about a thousand feet below you. Well, and they probably were a thousand feet below me. Um, although in one case, there was a uh, what appeared to be a, a UPS 747 that I could read UPS on the side of the airplane. All right, I mean, and that's. But yeah, you're right. I'm sure it was. I mean, I'm sure there was no separation bust going on here. All right, but it was it was astounding a couple of different times that these things appeared, you know, sort of on a 45 degree angle course from ours, um, just kind of appearing from underneath us. And uh, um, it, it, it it always that's that's always kind of wow. Look at that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Coming back from uh, uh, coming back from Sun and Fun, not this year, but. 2010, riding with a buddy of mine in his small jet, uh, and before we got as far north as Tallahassee, of course that part of Florida is, tends to have a lot of commercial airline traffic, but we had visual uh, on five airliners. None of them were ever a surprise. ATC always gave us a traffic alert, mm -hmm. and, the, sure. and the collision avoidance system always showed where they were. But like you, it's kind of like, wow, I could read that one. That, well, 
a couple of them were very easy to identify as American Airlines airliners because they're shiny. Yeah, but I, it just took me by surprise how many I saw. And the other thing that was was somewhat sobering, not to turn this conversation to a dark place, but um, so one of them in particular was pretty much going exactly the opposite direction, probably on the same airway and obviously in the other direction. Um, and it, it it's kind of always a little bit surprising to see how fast the closure rate really is oh yeah and it and it brings to mind you know among other things the the brazilian midair um you know you kind of you know on one level maybe maybe a layman can say you know can wonder how you can be flying along and not see never see an airplane that came close enough to actually make contact and uh you know the how quickly they come out of nowhere um and that's when you can see them, you know, sort of somewhat side on. Can you imagine if all you had was a head on perspective? Um, it, it's, you know, it's just an object lesson in, you know, see and avoid. Keep your eyes open. Really pay attention because mm-hmm. these things will come out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, well, it, 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 that, that's, a, that's a good apropos topic for us, too, because, yeah. uh, you know, the, uh, flight instructors, safety people and others will will hammer this again and again. What you see moving is not usually the risk. It's that dot on the windshield that doesn't move. Right. That's, yeah. you, that, you know, that, that may not be bug smash. That may be airplane. Yeah. And yeah, all no, it really. does is get larger and larger as the closing, you know, uh, continues. Yeah. Right. And head on yeah. can be the hardest of all. Yeah, the other thing, of course, is the ones that you see are the ones that you see what about the ones you don't see yeah the ones that you never see you know that just kind of better whether you're looking away or or um, you know the weather's not quite you know doesn't allow or or uh, something like that there's a lot of traffic out there um you know if you got a tcas or a or an fi or i'm sorry a tis um display in your airplane you know you'll see a lot more with that equipment than you will with the mark one mod one eyeball yeah um, but at the same time, so what? Um, the the way the system works, in it, you know, it, it works. And uh, except in uh, Brazil, kind of, but except well, except in Brazil, and that's you know probably been fixed now. I make I make light of it. They, they, uh, you know. I wouldn't go that. You really? Far. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I think I think Brazilians. I think I think. Uh, let me let me rephrase. I think a lot of people are still in denial. How about that? And I'm not talking about a river. Okay, and and, and one of the one of one of the aspects of the Brazilian accident was something that occasionally happens here, legal and known by by all, and that is, ATC will ask you to take an altitude that's counterintuitive for the heading that you're steering. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of being at the even altitude. Uh, for your for your heading, they'll ask you to go to the odd altitude for for whatever reason. Uh, uh, it's happened to me. Uh, I've been with other people. It's happened to. It's usually not for very long, yeah. and you know it's when ATC when the controllers can see everybody. Maybe it's to help them manage traffic flow so that they don't have to steer people away because of the potential for uh, for uh, getting too close. But uh, you know, it, it always I always put a little sticky note up when they'd ask me to cruise at six thousand instead of seven, or right. 
you know, 9,000 instead of 10. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a altitude, just ALT exclamation point. So on the instrument scan, I keep coming back to that little note going, mm-hmm. yeah, I should ask them about that in a couple of miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I had a similar, well, I had an episode. Um, I don't know what episodes might be done. Curiosity, let's put it that way. I'm, I'm droning along uh, on an IFR flight plan somewhere over Mississippi, I guess. Uh, and headed more or less westbound, so I'm at, I'm at an even altitude uh, uh, IFR. So I think it was 8,000 feet. Um, and just, you know, my, talking to ATC, of course, minding my own business, and ATC calls traffic, a Skyhawk, opposite direction at 8,000 feet. And I'm like, okay, and um, um, what's, you know, what's the deal? And, and well, you 12 o'clock and da-da-da-da-da. Uh, five miles, three miles. I said, you know, I'll take a vector here uh, and got a vector around him and, you know, saw him go by and all that kind of crap. But I'm like, A, why is he at my altitude when I'm at the correct altitude for the direction of flight? B, why am I the one taking a vector? C, you know, we're basically the only people on the frequency here. Does he have an operational issue? He's got to be at 8,000 feet. And if so, why can't he be at 7,000 feet? Uh, there wasn't, you know, any any airspace to any inter- air, you know, MOAs or which are uh, there's a buttload out there mm-hmm. in that air, in that area, a uh, bunch of MOAs and, and restricted areas and things like that. But either we were not near them or they were all cold. And I'm just trying to, you know, I, I always kind of, kind of scratch my head over that. I never, you know, made a big deal out of it as I am want to do. Yes. On occasion. <laughs> yeah. Um But uh, uh, it was always a head scratcher for me. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so how much of, of how do I ask this question, uh, of I'm making finger quotes, well, it is IFR, IFR traffic these days. If you're on an IFR flight plan, how often are you not flying on an airway? I guess that's my question. A lot. Yeah, these days lot, you get a lot yeah. of directs. You know? See, because yeah. you know, I guess the theory is that if you're on an air, well, the one I worry, the case I worry about, all right, here's what I'm getting at. The case I worry about is the, is the situation where you're both technically heading in a direction that puts you at the same altitude, but you're sort of on a converging course. This happens all the time in VFR, right? Sure. Um, and and I'm you know my thought would be that it doesn't happen as often um, on in IFR flight because you're following the flight the uh, the airways but I no, guess maybe you're no, not you know no the the randomness of it all um, is is both good and bad yeah uh, it's a big sky level, and usually yeah, the big, big sky, sky works for you yeah yeah usually the big sky thing works for you uh, on occasion and I, and um, um, I remember one uh, flight I think it was one year going to Oshkosh. Um, I was going across the lake, and I was, you know, eight, ten, twelve thousand feet. I don't remember. And there was a Mooney. Um, had to have been a non-turboed Mooney because I was overtaking him. Or the speeds were, you know, five, ten knots different, something like that. I was a little bit faster, and um, he was on a converging course at the same altitude. And uh, I forget how that was resolved. I, I remember seeing him, so it may have been a thing of. Of um, you know, um, okay, you know, traffic's inside. I'll accept v- visual separation responsibilities, uh, or he could have been VFR. I don't remember, but we got you know close enough to see each other, not close enough to read in numbers, but uh, um, uh, we were both talking to each other. The more I think about it, the more I think one of us was uh, VFR. But uh, uh, stuff like that does happen, and uh, 
Um, I, I remember another uh, flight, and it's been a couple of years ago, I was VFR, uh, headed north out of, out of Sarasota up to Georgia, and um, had a friend with me who'd uh, uh, never really been in a, she'd been in light airplanes before, but um, uh, I guess not with me, I guess was the punchline. And uh, so we were droning along, talking, we're stiff headwinds, so I was low, 2,500 feet, VFR at night. And I'm talking to ATC, and um, they call traffic. Uh, yeah, I, I guess they call traffic. Said, so, you know, there's a you got uh, a 1,200 target. You know, um, uh, one to two o'clock uh, uh, indicates 3,000 unverified. Yada yada yada. You're slightly overtaking him or her. Okay, fine. So we drone along, start seeing the lights, and the lights get bigger, and the lights get bigger, and and the passengers like, what are you going to do about that? I said, I'm not going to do a whole lot of anything. Um, traffic at 3,000. There's no reason on God's green earth for him or her to change altitude. There's no airports around here to descend into. And if he or she does start descending, we'll see that immediately. So we just droned right underneath them, uh, like 500 feet below them. Our lights are flashing, their lights are flashing, everybody's cool about it. Um, it was kind of neat to, to, you know, it was a, maybe it was a 206 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't really tell. Um, but uh, actually, I think I think we were talking to, to uh, uh, I think he was uh, talking to uh, ATC also or something like that. But uh, um, it was, you know, um, sometimes you get close, sometimes you don't. Yeah. Although it, it, there's a, isn't there, there's a weird optical illusion that can happen in those kind of situations that you have to be careful about because, I'm trying to remember how it works now. But basically, um, when you're at altitude, an oncoming object aircraft, obviously, uh, can can appear to be higher or lower than you when it's actually uh-huh. at your altitude, or vice versa. Right. Um, there was a midair over. Um, I want to say Germany uh, a few years back, high altitude. It, one aircraft was a uh, uh, Russian transport. Uh, I want to say AN seventy two four jet four engine. Uh, uh, transport. The other was, I think, a 757. Uh, I think it was Lufthansa and uh, uh, the Russian transport. And um, they were called traffic to each other. Um, everybody verified that they were at different altitudes. And inexplicably, one of the aircraft kind of panicked and started climbing, thinking they were on a collision course, and climbed right into yeah. okay. the oncoming traffic. And, um, of course, you know, uh, um, it was a big deal. Um there are any number of of um, night vision related um, phenomena. Right. The eye, uh, the eye is, is the Mark One Mod One eyeball is rather uh, uh, fallible, and uh, you have <clears throat> autokinesis, where a stationary object, uh, in fact, appears to be uh, non-stationary. You have the depth perception issues, where you can't really tell how far away a lighted object is without some perspective. Um, and then you have um, um, some other issues associated with the eye um, that escape me right now. But all of that can combine to, to make for a really bad day. Yeah. And, and the one I'm th- thinking of is not simply night-related. I mean, it can happen in the daytime, sure. too. Sure. Apparently, yeah, J- David, what were you going to say? I was just uh, uh, concurring. Absolutely, it can happen during the day too. Yeah, it has something to do with the fact that the the eye or you know your mind assumes that the horizon is the point that's even with you. You know, is at your same level, but in mm-hmm. fact, when you're at ten thousand feet, 
the horizon is not the level point, you know. So you get no, these, it's kind of on a down angle, isn't it? Yeah, right. So so you you, know, you can kind of get get these weird optical illusions. There was another situation. There was another video that was floating around the internet a couple of years ago or a year ago or so about a fighter plane that uh, that got nose to nose with another aircraft, like an airliner or something. And right, uh, that was uh, apparently an ATC mistake. Yeah, um, and but the, yeah. again the and the uh, and the fighter plane had cockpit video, had sort of gun video or whatever it really was, you know. Um, you know, looking forward video that we all saw. And the thing that was, I mean, many things were interesting about that, not the least of which was that we all as viewers knew it was coming and still didn't see it until the right. last minute. You know, right. um, it goes back to that thing about how fast the closure rate is. And uh, yeah, so. and, and there's other videos out there uh, um, where your video is taken from a cockpit of an airliner. Mm-hmm. And, um, just you know, shooting straight over the nose, and there'll be another airplane just going underneath it, in the same direction, but a thousand feet below. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember one uh, apparently from from an Airbus and uh, seven four was going underneath them, um, and the, the contrails, and it looked a lot worse than it really was. Of course, the seven four is a rel- relatively big hunk of metal, um, but um, with RVSM, pretty much the rule now uh you see a lot more of that than you used to yeah yeah well, and that that's why that thousand foot separation that you think it, it was in effect probably was in effect because uh if you want to fly above 270 you have to be rvsm compliant uh, mm-hmm. the aircraft has to have the equipment and uh the certification to to do so so that they could use that extra thousand feet that previously before rvsm was going unused they maintained a 2,000-foot stack separation uh, prior to that, above 270, mm-hmm. because inaccuracies in the equipment, radar, uh, latency, you know, all this stuff that uh, technologies helped eliminate. And, you know, one of these days we'll have technology that eliminates the human error. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Except, you know, unless you have, yeah, sure, if you have a machine writing the code. Right. Yeah, but that would also doom this podcast because then we'd have to no human oh, error, no, no can, podcast. Right? We can find we can find plenty of foibles that don't necessarily come down to errors. So. No, no, I mean, I mean, because, because this podcast down. is a big error, it would get eliminated. Anyways, oh, hey, welcome, folks, ah. to episode two hundred and thirty-nine of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise That's yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house That's right. we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. Have, does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're on site clear around turkey central ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and alpha We are recording this episode once again in the morning. It's uh, Monday morning, June thirteenth, twenty eleven, and uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar is uh, first of all that singing guy is Dave Higdon, joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Morning, Dave. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing great here. Sunshiny day. It's only going to go to one o two today, so uh, yeah, going to kick back and 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 enjoy the uh, maintenance that we did on the AC systems over the weekend. But it's but it's a dry one o two, right? No, not in Kansas. 
Uh, probably will be today. Yeah. I, Las Vegas was a little bit of a disappointment for me this way this year in that regard. Uh, one of the things I look forward to going to Las Vegas is is the heat. I like the heat when it's not humid heat. And uh, uh, the irony this year in Las Vegas was that most of the two weeks I was there, uh, it was warmer in Boston than it was in Las Vegas. It was just you know, I mean, the weather continues to be a a mind boggler these days and you need to check who you make your travel arrangements i sir. know feeling there's some conspiracy going yeah, on i know yeah and also uh, joining us here in the virtual hangar this morning is jeb burnside talking to us from somewhere near sarasota florida good morning jeb how are you i'm well and, and i'm basking in the glow of knowing that it's going to be hotter in wichita today than than it will be here in sarasota now you've got weird weather um it, it hasn't rained there in quite some time well it, actually it did rain here yesterday i wasn't physically present for it but um when i returned home later that day uh yeah later later in the day yesterday uh obviously saw the evidence of it but it didn't make a whole lot of dent in in the drought uh and and i would call it a drought Mm -hmm. um um both of you of course were here uh in april and jack was here uh back in january uh and and as um um as a yardstick uh, literally and figuratively, uh, the lake in my backyard was relatively full back then. Yep. It's down a good two feet. Really? Um, two yeah. feet? E- easily that, that's two amazing. feet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm having to refill the, the pool. And, you know, don't don't start crying for me. But, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, it's it's relatively dry here. And, and, yeah, I was kind of surprised to see a shower yesterday. And it was uh, mid- midday or so. So that's even that is, is also ra- relatively odd. The forecast is, you know, kind of the typical Florida summer forecast: thunderstorms in the afternoon, and that goes out for the next few days. And I'm, I'm very optimistic that'll hold true because we really need it. I, my lawn guy, um, um, you know, I, I don't know how he's doing, you know, financially this year, but uh, uh, he just swung through here this morning with his trailer and everything, kind of looking everything over, and just kept on going because there's not enough rain to, to for the grass to grow. Mm-hmm. And doesn't do much good to, to unlimber the lawnmower and go cut. So yeah. um, it's, that's what we're going through. Hopefully, this will resolve itself here uh, in the near future, and we'll get back to uh, um, you know having to cut the grass, and, and the pond w- won't be so far down, and things like that. Yeah. And before I forget, I'm Jack Hodgson, and uh, I'm coming to you from uh, high atop Lookout Point in Nottingham, New Hampshire, where. Um, I missed the uh, the heat wave, so you know, like I said, while I was in Las Vegas, apparently it got into the 90s for a couple of days in a row, and it was pretty, pretty, pretty nasty in that regard, anyways. But uh, I'm sure my dad was loving it because he loves the hot weather. But uh, uh, I don't like the hot, humid weather. It's but now it's back down to being chilly. I got off the airplane last night, um, you know, in my short sleeves and, and shorts, and uh, and it was like a little chilly when I stepped outside the terminal, um, and. Uh, and then this morning it's overcast, and I mean it's compared to January in New Hampshire, it's a perfectly lovely day here today. Oh yeah, I get that. Uh, but uh, but it, it is a little bit weird. The weather continues to to kind of be weird in America these days. Um, you know, more tornadoes every time you turn around. The flight mm-hmm. back from uh, so we were, we were getting ready to get on this flight from Las Vegas to uh, to BWI. And uh, we were all actually lined up to to board the plane, and they were getting ready for boarding. And then the and all of a sudden the uh, the gate agent comes on the public address system and says, "Oops, I'm really sorry, but I, the pilot just got word that there's a delay, a weather delay in in Baltimore, 
and we're not going to board the airplane for another 20 minutes. Sorry. And uh, so they sent us all off for the, I, I went and sat down near the gate and five minutes later, she comes back again. She says, no, wait, they just changed it quick. Let's get on the airplane. Yeah. So uh, apparently there was a bunch of fun. And then when we actually arrived in, in Baltimore, um, you know, we're, we we landed and we're taxiing, and you can see that the ground is wet, like it's rained fairly recently, and uh, so we're taxiing around the ramp, and I'm and I'm taxiing along. We're taxiing along, and I noticed like three or four Southwest uh, airliners sitting in the penalty box. All right. Um, and on this big pad, and I'm thinking, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder what's going on. Maybe there, maybe there's another storm coming, and they're de- delaying the departures, or I don't know what's going on. And so we're taxiing by them, and all of a sudden, we made a turn away from the terminal, and we taxied into the penalty box. And I'm going, oh, this is not good. And the moment we stopped rolling, the captain came on the intercom and said, well, what happened was there was a huge thunderstorm passed through here just half an hour ago, and it delayed a whole bunch of flights. And as a result, there's still a jet on at our gate, and so we got to wait a few minutes. So we sat in the penalty box for about 10 minutes and uh, and eventually so big storms passed through uh, the east coast of the united Jack, states yeah that that 20 minutes that was first advertised yeah okay and and kind of everybody kind of dispersed and then you know a few minutes later the the gate agent came back and said now we're going to go ahead and board yeah and and all that you probably still had a 20 minute delay all things considered oh, gate to gate yeah if you think about it yeah but yeah. Uh, so uh it was it's in- quite a it, it's quite a piece of choreography uh, it, it, that those it big hubs getting yeah. traffic in and out, gates free, not blocking taxiways. Uh, not a job I'd want. Yeah, in the old days, and and now of course they can do that kind of thing because they have good instantaneous communication between any two airports in America. Um, I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, there was, a, there was it was a cliche, you know, the holding pattern and stacked up over the airport waiting to land and that kind of thing. Right. The, the, and and certainly planes get in holds every now and then these days. But and tell me if I'm correct. My sense is that that kind of stacked up holding pattern thing doesn't happen as much anymore. It doesn't, and there's a there's a reason. Back in in the '80s, uh, the FAA cobbled together something called uh, I call it CF squared, uh, Central Flow Control Facility. It was out in, I think, Herndon, Virginia, outside D.C. Mm-hmm. And uh, they started funneling in <clears throat> uh, delay data and uh, uh, real-time uh, display of, of traffic aloft and, and things of this sort. Um, and um, it's, it's grown now to become the Air Traffic Control Command Center, I think it's called. Uh, still in the same, I believe, location, uh, but much more uh, formalized than it was back then. And... Uh, uh, is kind of the, um, uh, the the nerve center, the brain center of uh, mm-hmm. air traffic control here in the U.S. And that's where the original, um, uh, on your flight going out uh, yesterday from Vegas, that's where the original idea came for a 20-minute delay. Mm-hmm. They're looking at destinations. They're looking at flight congestion, or, or I should say uh, um, um, schedules into various airports. They don't want aircraft stacked up in holes anymore for several reasons, not least of which is fuel consumption, but also you know wear and tear on the airplanes. The airlines don't like it. Uh, passengers don't like it. Um, and of course, there's you know um, the air traffic control situation. There's, there are fewer controllers uh, than there were um, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, there are, uh, um, you know, you start getting... Uh, uh, sectors that are saturated are saturated with people holding, um, and and it starts to get rather hectic. They want to try to eliminate that. Mm-hmm. So 
it's all good from the standpoint of uh, uh, better management. Uh, every now and then you have to take your hit and, and stay on the ground. And once you launch, the idea is you can proceed all the way to your destination airport without any undue delays. Um, but, uh, you know, you might get a delay on the ground because the ramp's not clear. Right, right. So, yeah, and my, my layman's understanding of this has always been that, to oversimplify it probably, they don't let you take, they don't let, well, I was going to say airliners. My guess is that it, they don't let anybody on an IFR flight plan take off until they have a reasonably good belief that they're going to be able to land that's, when they get there. That's, basic, that's basically correct. It's not just airliners, although, um, you know, the, the, the system was, was basically created um, to serve the air carriers because that, that's, they have the highest frequency. They're, they're going into the more congested airports. But if you're, um, uh, you know, I don't know, a Falcon uh, jet and you're launching from, say, uh, um, Henderson, Nevada to BWI uh, at the same time as your Southwest flight, you would probably have gotten the same kind of delay. And you would have, have realized that uh, when you called ATC for your clearance. They would have said, well, we'll give you the clearance, but we're going to have to give you a, a gate hold. Uh, and here's your, you know, here's your expect clearance time and uh, um, call us back, you know, five minutes before that or something like that. Right. And, you know, if you're lucky, you wouldn't have started engines yet or you'd be sitting there burning all that fuel waiting for the delay. Um, it's, it's for the average uh, piston driver, the average, average personal aircraft driver, he or she isn't going to those major hubs where delays can, can not only uh, pile up, but have major impact on the number of operations, the number uh, of, of airplanes that they can handle in any given time frame. So as a rule, and there's always exceptions, but as a rule, uh, if you're going to a, a non-hub destination, uh, let's say instead of BWI, you're going to Fort Meade, uh, Foxtrot Mike uh, Echo, which is a, a reliever airport for BWI, um, chances are you wouldn't get that same kind of a hold. It all kind of depends on uh, why the hold exists? Is it a is it a, an airport acceptance rate? Is it an ATC sectorization issue? Is it uh, um, something else? Is it a combination of things? Uh, if if it's an ATC related issue, going to that same airspace, uh, you probably still wouldn't get the hold because they can kind of vector you around and, and shuffle you, you know, maybe in a seam or into a different sector or something like that to get to your de- destination. Uh, but sometimes uh, even even uh, uh, personal airplanes will get that same hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, we've gotten the GA equivalent of a gate hold after receiving a clearance, taxi clearance. We taxi down and then get a modified clearance. And now we're going to have to hold you for a little bit because of saturation in a sector. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we need to let the traffic clear out a little bit so that controller, and it would be somewhere usually on the next, on, on the first handoff after leaving the airport. Uh, and we've also had it uh, affect us en route, where <laughs> we were going into Louisville, uh, into Louisville's airspace, landing at Clark County, Indiana, which is about uh, 11 miles from Louisville International. Uh, but it's in their airspace, in Louisville Approaches airspace. Louisville's got the UPS uh, the main air center there. So in the evenings, there's a lot of heavy iron coming through. It was a significant IMC evening, and along about St. Louis, when St. Louis gave us back to Kansas City Center, 
but before we got handed off to Indy, we were asked if we could slow down. <laughs> and and I'd never been asked that before. Uh, we were we were benefiting from a pretty good tailwind because mm-hmm. of the system we're in, and we were IMC. And my first thought was, I must be gaining on somebody or something like that. And I said, sure, how slow do you need me? To? He said, if you could back off about 20 knots, it'll help us segue the traffic through the sector on the arrival. Uh, because the, the controller that's got to handle that part and your approach around from the nav VOR, he's really OD'd right now with a bunch of GA traffic coming into Clark County. And then we've got the UPS stuff. So it's like, okay. So we pulled it back 20 knots. The fuel flow went way down. We were still making, uh, I don't know, 170 knots across the ground because of the push. Uh, and then it was like, okay, we're going to vector you out here a little farther away, then bring you back in on the ILS. Okay. Well, it all worked out to their ability to not have – their ability to manage the flow through that sector. And uh, – knowing the terrain and the towers and all that, we appreciated the thought of having a very focused controller keeping an eye on us going in there. Yeah. Not a place to, not a place to uh, be uh, casual about getting down. No, it's not. And, and no, you know, another thing, too, um, some of that has to do with just being able to fit into the flow. Um, everybody headed west to east uh, had a tailwind, pretty much. And uh, they're all coming a little bit faster than uh, perhaps uh, the local controllers were, were anticipating. So everybody's kind of ahead of schedule, so they need to start slowing some people down to make sure that uh, they can fit everybody onto the same runways. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, whether um, uh, um, they were worried about fitting you into the flow in the terminal space or they just had too blinking much traffic, uh, for for one sector, two sectors to deal with. Uh, who knows at this stage? Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it, it's all a matter. Of, I heard this back in the '80s, and it's still true today. We have to put them together to keep them apart. Uh, oh, it was, that's interesting. Was, yeah, was the old <laughs> I saying. hadn't heard that one in a long time. Yeah, have to put them together to keep them apart. And uh, the 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 moral of that story is um, that they line them up. Uh, get them, get them uh, spaced, get them staggered, uh, uh, whether it's altitude or speeds or, or whatever else. Uh, it's easier for air traffic control to have people sequenced on the same routes at the same altitudes at the same speeds, um, you know, a, a good distance away from the, the runway they're going to be landing on than it is for all this randomness out there. And that's why we have terminal arrival. That's why we have standard arrivals. That's why we have departure procedures. Uh, um, all the same, um, got to put them together to keep them apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, we're having way too much fun this morning. We're never going to get through this whole list. But uh, oh, there's a list. Yeah. Well, I was, oh, right. I remember the list. So I was I just looking at the list, list, trying to figure out what we should talk about here. Uh, Dave, you've been shopping. You've been on Craigslist all over the place here. You got a couple thing Craigslist related things here. Let's see. First of all, you you found a, a tea hanger for sale for two thousand dollars. So that's yeah, that's Kingman like an airport out west of Wichita. So this is like tea hanger for sale at Kingman Municipal Airport in Kingman, Kansas. Hanger is partial concrete, very tied down. The hanger will accommodate conventional gear as well as tricycle gear aircraft. Hanger is fully enclosed with large sliding door and electric service available. If interested, call etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, so obviously this is like a condo hanger where you own the hanger and. Uh, 
So your point here is this is a good price, $2,000, and you own the hangar, right? Uh, you know, when you when you consider that in the Wichita area, for example, uh, the hangar rents start at about 200 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. How many months do you have to pay 200 bucks a month before you've paid for the hangar? Right, but presumably there's some Let's sort see. of condo the calculator. Is there a slide room? Presumably there's some sort of fee on top of this, you know, the equivalent of a condo fee, right? You know, like a, a monthly that pays for the ground or pays for something. Well, I, there, there, there can be. It, it all depends, and I don't know this right. situation in Dave, I don't know about the Kingman Airport if it's, you know, convenient for you or or, or it, it, it's like too that. far to be convenient. Yeah. yeah. What's the runway like there? Well, and that was my other question: is what's the airport in general like? Yeah, David. What's the runway like? What's the airport like? Oh, Kingman's a nice little, uh, nice little community. I guess it's about forty miles uh, west of Wichita, which would make it about fifty miles west of my house. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the runway. Uh, I know yeah. it's a north-south. I should have yeah. looked this up. That's all right. Jeb and I are probably both looking. I know I'm looking no, it up. I, I'm not, I'm not going to bother you. I got it right here. Oh, six. I, I, I did some research on, on – go ahead. Uh, just, just to give you the data here, um, two different runways, both over 6,700 feet long. Oh, shoot. Okay. They have, they have approaches, I would presume. Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they got um, three RNAVs and a VOR DME. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's the punchline on all that. Yeah, there probably is some kind of a condo fee um, uh, associated with this, um, but more importantly, um, there's a there's a lease probably associated with this hangar, right. and depending on how much time is left on the lease, uh, generally they're you know twenty thirty years, kind of like you know a mortgage on a on a residential ha- uh, property, um, but you could you know buy this hangar. And then discover in a couple of years that your lease has ended and either is not renewable or is only renewable at a much higher rate or, you know, things of this sort. Um, hanger leases, hanger, condo hangers uh, is, is a subject that is not really, in my mind, an aviation topic. It's a real estate topic. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's more of a real estate transaction than it is a, an aviation transaction. I, I did some research on, on some of this for, for an article several years ago and came away just kind of shaking my head at all the complexities involved and all of the, um, the different nuances. Um, it's, it's not unlike leasing, uh, um, uh, say, a storefront in a, in, a, in a mall or a strip mall or something like that in that – um, yeah, you can go in and you can gut the building and you can customize it and you can do anything you want, um, but you're going to leave that all behind. Right. Uh, when you, yeah. if and when you 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 lose the lease, or, or and if and when the the airport decides that it doesn't want to uh, have condo hangers anymore, uh, maybe it, at the end of your lease they're going to convert it to uh, a month by month type yeah. of, of thing yeah. uh, where you just rent the hangar. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of, of uh, it works great. It works better. Let me put it that way. It works better for a, um, uh, a, a, a strictly a business operation as opposed to a personal nonprofit uh, uh, operation where um, condo fees, lease, lease payments, things of that sort can be deducted. Um, and you take the risk of, uh, of uh, you know having to eat uh, some of these some of this investment down the road, uh, 
you, it works better, you know, if you can deduct some of these expenses than if you're having to pay these things out of pocket. Right, right. Let me jump in here with a correction. The uh, the the Kingman with the 6,700 foot runways was not Kingman, Kansas. It was Kingman, Arizona. Kingman, ah, Ki- Kingman, Kansas. Yeah, Kingman, Kansas has also two runways: one forty three hundred and one thirty four hundred. So, uh, um, and they do appear to have. Uh, uh, two RNAVs and a VORDME, although in AirNav, which is what I'm looking at here, all three of these approaches are flagged with the word changed, which I don't know if that means it's that means changed a, from this or to this. Um, no, all that means is there's a change notice that's been published in the recent cycle. Oh, okay. And, and if you're using... Uh, and I, I've lost track of where the cycles are as far as uh, terminal procedures here lately, but basically it means that since the last FIA slash Aeronav uh, uh, approach plate booklet was published for that region, there's a change notice. Uh, the, the, the approach or approaches are published also in the current change notice, and you need to refer to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then on the subject of uh, the leases, uh, the, uh, the this is one of the things they did out here at uh, Northampton Airfield in, in uh, Northampton, New Hampshire, um, a charming little grass strip that I've talked about from time to time on the podcast. And a, um, it, it's uh, privately owned, owned by a guy who uh, at, uh, up until about five, six years ago was a working uh, airline pilot. And uh, as as you know, time progressed, and he was thinking more about retirement. You know, we were all a little worried. You know, what was going to happen to this little airport that's just as many airports are. You know, uh, uh, just squeezed in between. You know, growing. The Home Depot went up on this end, and you know, something else went up on that end. And about six years ago, uh, he suddenly started uh, uh, giving out or renting um, leases for people to build big hangars on the far side of the runway. And I thought it was fairly genius because what he did was um, he gave out 99-year leases on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. So you, you got a 99-year lease and then you built your own hangar. Right. And I thought this was genius because what it did was put another layer of protection in for the airport sticking around whoever the next owner might be. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, because he actually he actually actively tried to sell the airport for a while, and I was over there the other day, and I was talking to them. And he's apparently sort of sort of still trying to sell it, but not trying so hard anymore. And he's retired now, I guess. But uh, but by having ninety nine year leases, you limit the ability of someone to buy the airport and then turn it into a mall. Yeah, uh, you, you don't you don't eliminate right that ability. Uh, but you do limit it. Um, uh, a classic scenario might be, okay, um, the old man dies, the heirs, you know, keep the property for a little while. They sell it to someone uh, who up, straight up and down avows that he or she is not going to turn it into a strip mall. Um, or, you know, maybe uh, uh, it's condemned by the local government. And they, in turn, uh, uh, abrogate all the leases mm. uh, through eminent, don- eminent domain. Or, you know, the uh, uh, the developer who bought the property kind of says, oh, sorry, guys, I didn't really mean that. Um, um, we're going to start the bulldozing tomorrow. Um, there's no guarantees. Yeah, yeah. So, David, what, let's see now. So you were going to buy a T-hanger for $2,000, and then you were apparently going to put a, a sport-powered a parachute into it, which you also found on Craigslist. Yeah, that was a funny day. I just was curious. I typed in airplane to the search and then aircraft to the search, and these two items came up. And usually when I type in airplane or aircraft into the local Craigslist 
uh, uh, listings, you know, what I get is a handful of radio control model things, maybe some airplane art or something like this, to actually have real aviation hardware. Uh, the $8,500 Airframes Unlimited Outlaw Extreme Powered Parachute with a trailer for $8,500. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, you know, and I looked up the company that makes them down in Texas, and uh, they uh, I've seen their hardware at a couple of the shows. Uh, this is not a luxury powered parachute with big fairing and and trick suspension. This is a bare bones, basic steel frame, but eighty five hundred bucks with an enclosed trailer for towing it to and from. Trailers uh, worth two or three grand. Yeah, uh, and if your idea of Fun aviating, which has been mine at, uh, at times, is tooling along at 30 to 38 knots. Uh, that's a wicked speed range. Yeah. But you can see a lot. Yeah. I, I This is not my kind of airplane. I know lots of people who love these, you guys obviously included, but uh, this is hanging and swinging from a parachute thing. I just... I remember one time in my life I went up in a hot air balloon and it wasn't even loose it was tethered and it kind of like went up to you know 10 stories above the ground and and my sensation was that we were always on the verge of tipping over you know because <laughs> the the swinging motion you know you don't you don't really have a sense you wouldn't when, have that if it wasn't tethered you think maybe I suppose huh no, you, in, you don't have it if it's tethered really I've been in, in untethered hot air balloons it, it's it's a great experience and I highly yeah. recommend it for anybody um, but you don't have that, that, that swinging sensation at all. Okay. Well, and then what's the sensation, David, like in these powered parachutes? The, the uh, there's, there's no swinging to it. I mean, once you get the, uh, the canopy inflated and it lifts off, there's a little bit of pendulum there as the, the parachute airfoil and the, the, the airframe align right. the power that you set. After that, it's, you want to climb, you add power, you want to level off, you reduce power, you want to descend, you reduce power. Everything happens at about the same speed, about 30 knots. I can, uh, I can pretty much guarantee that if I was flying it, there would be a pendulum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and that's my only experience watching. We, I've never flown in one of these powered parachute things. And just for people not picturing this, so it's a basically kind of a parachute canopy thing, and then hanging from it is, uh, in this particular case, is a, a, a metal frame aircraft in tricycle gear, or is it tricycle gear? But anyways, wheeled uh, with a big uh, blade, you know, cage-enclosed blade on the back, and uh, um, and one or two seats in the front, and uh, and it's and it's controlled or directed by sort of the equivalent of weight shift, right? I mean, you kind of you're holding a bar. Am I correct about this? And you're actually no, no? how no. do you? There's no control no, surfaces. No weight shift to it. But but you're but you're you, how's it controlled? It, then there are no control surfaces, right? Well, yes. Uh, oh, on the actually, on the on the uh, on the canopy, there's there's yeah, control surfaces. Yeah, the same way that. Skydivers are able to turn and maneuver All under right. square canopies. Yep. You've oh, got well, a, that's a control linkage here that closes off part of the cells on one side uh, and it creates a little more drag on one side or the other, and it turns, and it's basically okay. a coordinated turn. I stand corrected. Uh, nevertheless, uh, watching these things fly at, at, uh, at Air Venture and Sun and Fun, there seems to be a lot of swaying and swinging going on. At least I think you're thinking more of trikes than powered parachutes. Maybe, maybe. Anyways, so this will be. Uh, so this is your hangar and your aircraft, and uh, 
Um, well, least, it just it jumped out at me. This week's fantasy hangar in airport. Five hundred dollars. You got a light sport aircraft seating for two and a hangar and a hangar and a trailer to take it. You know, to the EAA fly-in on the Fourth of July weekend. Yeah, yeah. Now let's see. Now, in a completely different mode of thought, Jeb, you're apparently ready to volunteer to go to Mars. I would do that in a heartbeat. You would. So what yeah. are we talking about here? You find you came across a, let's see now, do I have it open on my screen? This is... Uh, I don't have it open on my screen. I don't either. It. Here we go. One-way ticket to Mars. Somebody, apparently someone came up with a plan or they're talking about, you know, the whole proposed, dreamed about um, human mission to Mars. And, uh, well, let's see, let me just read your summary of it here. What you wrote was, uh, you, you were quoting presumably from this article where you said the ideal candidate would not be a young person. Well, you got it. You're, you're set there. Um, yeah. But rather, <laughs> sorry, but re- all three of us would fit in just fine. All right. You, uh, what, shall, shall I read it for you? Yeah, Jack? maybe you better read it because I obviously have the wrong <laughs> attitude here. Uh, this is quoting from the story, and it's a WashingtonPost.com uh, uh, website uh, story. The ideal candidate would not be a young person, but rather someone who has had many of the experiences that make up a rich life. Marriage, child-rearing, satisfying work, long-term friendships. The, the crew would certainly need engineers and a pilot. And I'm thinking, hey, you know, I check all those boxes off, and, and yeah. uh, except maybe the engineer thing. But um, You're just an engineer without credentials. Is, you're, you're plenty yeah, engineer. Yeah, yeah. The basic story is um, uh, two scientists, Paul Davies of Arizona State University and Dirk Schultz, I'm going to butcher this name, um, hyphenated last name, Schultz Makuch of the University of Washington, in an article in the Journal of Cosmology uh, proposed, well, not so much proposed, I'm sure it's been proposed in the past, but rather in greater detail discussed the ethics, the uh, uh, um, idea of sending colonizing Mars uh, via one-way uh, um, uh, space transportation. In other words, you're not coming back. Um, you, you take with you enough stuff to get um, um, situated to, to build shelter, to, to find food and water, and uh, um, you're basically colonizing the planet. This is, you know, uh, um, straight out of uh, um, some science fiction movies and, and you know, um, don't uh, go into the old spaceship that you find over in the in the spaceship um, junkyard and, and start uh, opening up little pods. But um, uh, yeah, <laughs> I got this it. Is, yeah, this, a- <laughs> yeah, this is this is uh, um, yeah, I would do this for sure. I mean, uh, how how, how better or you know maybe there are better ways, but um, how leave your mark. Mark on, on, on civilization. How, how better to do that? Yeah. I, I kind of agree with you. I'm not sure if I'd have the courage to do it, but the idea of, you know, being one of those people. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm a big believer that we've got to do it. I, I, you know, I mean, we've gotten, this is not exactly an aviation topic, but, no, no. But, uh, but yeah, I'm a big believer in the fact that the humanity has to get off this planet uh, if we're going to, it's one of the next steps and, uh, and a required one. <laughs> The story goes on, you know, NASA officials, of course, were reluctant to discuss the idea, which goes very much against the grain of the agency's idea of human exploration in space. Uh, But in a statement earlier this year, NASA officials responded to the Journal of Cosmology articles by saying, quote, Mars is not the current focus for NASA's human exploration efforts, but it is our ultimate goal. Uh, Last year, President Obama informed NASA in a speech that the agency would be sending astronauts to an asteroid by 2025. Well, whoop-dee-doo. Uh, that's part, not part of the quote. Um, the president also said that he believed that by the mid-2030s that we could send humans to 
orbit Mars and safely return them to Earth. And then the Mars landing would soon follow. Um, uh, Elon Musk, founder of the private rocket company SpaceX and a great advocate of Mars explanation, also demurred. He said that a one-way trip is inconsistent with his idea of building a fleet of spaceships that would one day take not a handful, but thousands of people to colonize Mars. All that is well and good, and certainly understand you know the reluctance and, and the um, the um, prioritization. Um, but every little every great leap starts with a small step. Yeah. And, uh, yep. Uh, that that sounds you know to me just on the frontiers of everything. And yeah, I'd be up for that. Cool. Yeah. David, uh, on a subject that seems to be close to your well heart or some part of your body. Um, the there's been some uh, well I, it, it appears to me correct me if I'm wrong it appears to me there have been some good progress on the light squared 4G GPS controversy thing um, in the past week um, do you characterize it as progress David I do characterize it as progress uh, not enough but movement in the right direction uh, Thanks to uh, where's my link here? While you're looking Thanks. for your link, let me just summarize this for people who are just joining us. That uh, that the Light Square is the company that pro- has proposed a sort of next generation 4G cell phone system that many of us believe will dramatically interfere with the GPS system. And uh, there's been a lot of pushing and shoving on this over the last uh, few months. And now, what's happening, David? Well, we've had a number of things come uh, come forward here. First off. Uh, first phase of test of the interference potential of the light. For those who don't remember, the light squared system here started out to be a, a, a 4G network, bring wireless broadband to the world. Uh, when the new owners, the, the, the folks that changed their name to light squared, got a hold of this, uh, they weren't happy with what the satellite-based uh, system was going to do for them and what more it was going to take to make that work for them. And they got a waiver from the, uh, uh, or a change uh, approved from the Federal Communications Commission to let them put in, or plan to put in, something like 40,000 ground stations that would be broadcasting uh, fairly high power uh, RF on a frequency spectrum adjacent to the GPS spectrum that we use for navigation. Uh that frequency spectrum was not really set aside for ground transmitters. It was supposed to be space-based, but the, the change was approved. Right. Then we find out that there's this significant interference problem from the light-squared signals. Uh, some tests were ordered. Uh, they're, they're only operating under a waiver contingent on proving that they can do this without interfering with GPS. The first tests are in. The transmitter was only half the power that Light Squared says that its transmitters will be because they didn't have full-powered one available or didn't want to put it up. Right. Nonetheless, interference was significant uh, over large areas and small areas and different altitudes and different types of equipment from the half-power transmitter. Uh, Congress has weighed in, which, you know, depending on where you sit on any given day, could be a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, so the tests are going again. Congress is weighing in. DOD has expressed its concern. The FCC, we talked about that before. Uh, now investors are yeah. starting to 
pull their money out of the parent company for Light Squared. And, and this the may be the most... About a billion dollars recently. Yeah, and that may be the most telling of all these, that uh, that uh, that things are definitely starting to come apart for, from Light Squared's point of view. Well, and we, we, we're still hearing this, uh, this uh, uh, noise from them about how uh, it, it'd be possible to filter the, all the GPS receivers in different ways for different receivers so that, uh, you know, just pennies on it and people should be able to afford to do that. And that's really setting up the solution backward. Uh, the system right. shouldn't right. force all the existing GPS users with approved and within spec GPS receivers to have to adapt their equipment to let LightSquare do what it wants, particularly when there's still strong suspicion that it will cause problems even filtered. So we're we're seeing some movement back here, and this stays on my radar screen thanks specifically to the folks at Light Squared spending big bucks on full-page ads in my hometown newspaper, touting the 15,000 jobs in rural uh, broadband and all the wonders for civilization uh, without really addressing what those wonders of civilization t- will incur and impose on the GPS users of all different types, surveying people, uh, 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 delivery drivers, pilots navigating airplanes, maritime equipment, uh, agricultural stuff. It's all been shown to be interfered with by light squared. So. Yeah. So we're cautious. Correct me if I'm wrong. We're cautiously optimistic that things are heading in the right direction here, and this is going to not become the problem that we feared it would. Right. Um, just one more, you know, I, I kind of beat this drum every week and, <clears throat> excuse me, when we talk about this, but uh, um, because of the um, pervasiveness, for lack of a better word, of, of GPS, um, there's just simply no way that uh, light speeds plan would go forward here. Um, if, on the other hand, this was something that was aviation specific or or even worse, uh, general aviation specific, uh, I think we'd be looking at a, a whole different uh, series of possible outcomes. Yeah, well, we just, uh, we'll just but, make it, uh, we'll make the, the light speed, com- light squared compatible GPSs will become part of next gen, and we'll have it all solved. Right, yeah, and, and you know, if light speed wants to go out and buy me a, a brand new, uh, um, I don't know what the, the I know they, they recently came out with a, a different um, uh, types touch you know, let, me, let me back up if GP if LightSquared wants to go out and buy me a brand new top of the line Garmin uh, in panel navigator with the touch screen and was and all that kind of stuff on it um, and and won't cost me anything out of pocket I'm all for that <laughs> yeah. okay yeah uh, something that would be compatible with their their ground based system but that ain't going to happen yeah um, so there you go yeah David any last thoughts on this before we move on uh well, I like this one quote from uh, uh, one of the people involved in testing, and that's a, a, an executive at uh, Trimble, which makes GPS uh, receivers. Uh, the commission, quote, the commission and Light Squared cannot now rewrite the rules to shift the burden of eliminating air interference to GPS providers. That burden remains squarely with Light Squared. If Light Squared cannot demonstrate that it will not cause or that it alone will ameliorate harmful interference with GPS operations, it must not be permitted to initiate service. And that's where I'll leave it today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jeb, uh, 
uh, Air France 447. So yeah. uh, um, yeah. reached a real milestone over the last week. Um, and uh, what an astounding thing, by the way, almost as an aside, uh, somebody should be working on writing a book because um, this is quite a story. I'm mean, end well, I to end. I think so. And uh, um, I, I've certainly thought about that as far as you know, writing a book about it, this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I might still do that. Yeah. But, uh, what, now, what's the milestone we reached this past week? The milestone is, um, this is dated, this was BBC America or BBC.com, um, dated 7 June of, of the year. Uh, Air France crash salvage mission ends. Mm-hmm. Um, this is um, uh, kind of a, a milestone in the aftermath of this this uh, tragedy. Um, basically, the uh, the deep sea recovery uh, effort um, has ended. Um, they've they decided, I guess, that they've gotten all the wreckage and all the information, and in fact, all of the bodies that that are either retrievable or that they can reasonably expect to retrieve. Um, the um, uh, in all told, 104 bodies had been recovered from the ocean floor. And when we're talking about the ocean floor, we're talking more than 12,000 feet of water yeah. here. Um, uh, this is in, in, in addition to the 50 uh, uh, bodies that were recovered uh, from the surface in the immediate aftermath of this crash. And, and uh, for those who um, uh, haven't been paying attention or, or don't remember... Uh, this occurred on June 1, uh, 2009, uh, in, in uh, basically the equatorial Atlantic Ocean, uh, pretty much uh, uh, in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. uh, South America and Africa. Um, the, uh, it, the whole thing, and I've said this before, the whole thing is quite fascinating and very remarkable. Yeah. Now, great to uh, go in there and, and find, ultimately find the wreckage on the ocean floor and start retrieving it. Now, of course, we've been getting odd, odd bits and pieces of uh, of analysis and flight, you know, uh, recorder data and whatnot. Um, and I don't think there's been anything new on that regard in the last week. What should we expect in terms of time frame? How does it's what is it? BEA is the their equivalent of NTSB. Um, yeah, we always use as a rule of thumb. Uh, NTSB is like a year from the time of the. Well, usually from the time of the crash, but you know the time of the you know they've got all the data pulled together. It, does BEA work on a similar time frame? Would we expect a? How do they do it? Do they have like a final factual? Do they have the same kinds of reports and that kind of thing? Do you know? Um, yes and no. I mean, their role is essentially the same as NTSB's role, um, but um, um, I guess first of all, it would be. Um, um, overly optimistic uh, to say that even the NTSB um, does things within a year. Um, frequently, I, in a, uh, part of my trying to make a living every now and then, I'll go surf the NTSB website mm-hmm. and look uh, at specific accidents or specific uh, uh, time frames uh, for various reasons. And I will frequently find two-year-old accidents for which a probable cause has not been established. Uh, in other words, the NTSB has not, for any number of reasons, has not completed its investigation or has simply not um, um, gone to the, uh, the the final step of determining a probable cause. Uh, the French equivalent of the NTSB, the, the BEA, and I cannot pronounce the, um, um, the agency's name, um, but we'll, we'll just use BEA, um, 
has a similar role, but they operate under, um, you know, it's a different bureaucracy, it's a different culture, it's a different, uh, a lot of other things. And uh, although their ultimate ob- objective is the same as the NTSB's, I don't know that they will publish something that they, in fact, call a probable cause. They might publish a, a some, something else um, that will that would be analogous to an NTSB finding a probable cause. But to answer your specific question, um, the BEA said uh, a couple of weeks ago, as I recall, that they will have. Um, well, here actually, there's a. Uh, another another document here. I just realized that I haven't haven't really read. Um, let's see. Uh, um, yeah, this is just kind of a, a marker. This is uh, um, uh, this was a June seventh statement, but from the BEA saying that the recovery operations had had come to an end. Uh, that um, the recovery vessel itself. Um, is, was on route to uh, the Canary Islands uh, for uh, um, disembarkation of, of the uh, equipment and um, the components that it had recovered from the, the, the floor of the ocean. Uh, and then all of that would be transferred to, uh, to uh, 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 Toulouse, France, for in, uh, further investigation. Um, now, to answer your specific question, though, Jack, and I'm sorry I'm taking so much time doing so, um, BEA indicated they will have another... Uh, factual statement sometime uh, in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be another interim, interim report, for lack of a better word. Uh, it would not, I don't think, be the final um, statement uh, closing out the investigation on this accident. I think that probably won't come until much later in the year, maybe early next year. Uh, okay. That's just my sense. I have nothing on which to base that. Right. That's just my sense of the way this is all going to work. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk more about this later on. It's yeah. pretty fascinating. Yeah. But pretty it's, fascinating. You know, the, the punchline here today is that the the underwater recovery efforts have ceased, and now we've we've shifted from uh, uh, recovery to uh, not to say that the investigation hasn't been ongoing, but we've shifted fully from recovery into investigation and uh, um, uh, decision making, as it were. Yeah. Let's see now. Uh, a lot of good things on this list uh, that we're going to push off till next week. Um, why don't you guys glance at the list and see if there's anything we don't want to push off till next week? While you're doing that, let me just say that from time to time, things appear on this list that are not worth talking about. But for the first time ever, we've got a thing on the list here that I just haven't a clue how to talk about. Uh, Jeb, you've got one here. He said the URL says it all. <laughs> it is all right now let's be careful here let's be careful here it is a weather it's a weather website and and uh and maybe this is a way of driving people to the show notes you got to go to the show notes all right <laughs> okay um it's a weather weather site uh it is a very very simple bare bones display of the current weather at your location that actually the temperature at your location and then a simple forecast um, the uh, the let me see if I can say, uh, give you a, 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 a hint as to what this is called so you can figure out. It's called the website is called it's not but I'll say it's called the freaking weather. That's the URL the freaking weather dot com. That's the, the PG related. The farking uh, weather. The, uh, the fracking the weather. fracking weather. All right. Okay. What the frack is with the all this weather. mother fracking weather <laughs> in this mother fracking world. Exactly. So uh, uh, it's. 
it's uh, just a little quick and dirty uh, web dis- web you know page that displays the current temperature and and uh, but uh, they have a good time making it NSFW as we say someplace sometime some ways anyways um, check it out and if you don't know what uh, I'm talking it, about, it, if you cannot figure out what I'm talking about, we'll put the real URL in the show notes. Yeah, yeah or don't. If or you don't. can't figure it out, chances are you don't want to know. Um, well, in, in, in the, the link at the bottom of the page, I typed in my zip. <clears throat> Excuse me. I typed in my zip. It came up, and then I see this link at the bottom of the page. It says, blank weather isn't all your future holds. <laughs> 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 Which takes us to... Earthshod, which has nothing to do with weather. What, what, what new job is It's like a magic eight ball page. <laughs> do I have another chance with my ex, or am I to find someone new? Okay. What will my baby be like? Is my current relationship in trouble? Is there dishonesty in my relationship? One of the one of the all one of the other one of the other I guess features of this website is there's a button. Not unlike Google's, I'm feeling lucky button that is is uh, brings up a random location. What weather at a random location? That's kind of cool. And it's not just domestic U.S. It's it's uh, international destinations also. But uh, um, um, it's it's cute. It's a one you know, one of these one page wonders yeah. uh, that we see on the internet occasionally. And uh, um, I just came across it and threw it on the list. Yeah. Other than shout outs, is there anything here we don't want to skip? We don't want to push off till next week. You know, in Lanzhen, China, it's 78 degrees right now. <laughs> well, on that note, shout-outs. Uh, what do we got here? Uh, David, uh, uh, what the I heck? I got two. Uh, let me do one and then somebody else do something. Okay, go ahead. Back. Okay. Uh, gentleman that we talked about some months ago that I met at a, 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 a corporate event back in 2010, James Oliphant. He's uh, uh, an employee of the AOPA Insurance Agency here in Wichita and uh, set a goal and met it of visiting 50 Kansas airports in one day to celebrate his 50th birthday and to raise money for cancer research. We talked about him several episodes back uh, when I heard from him about his plans to do this. Uh, His birthday attempt was successful. He hit 50 airports. He's a a little over halfway to his goal of raising 5000 for cancer research, so there'll be a link on it you can go to and chip in a buck or two on your own if you feel like it. But, hey, congratulations, James. Uh, he and Mooney and uh, a buddy, uh, that has to be quite a hump to yeah. take off and land and, and, and it, just to, to route yourself around so you wind up back where you started. 50 airports in a day. Congratulations. Well, not- yeah, big big time congratulations. And and as as Dave alluded, I mean, not only is that a lot of work, uh, but doing it safely is is also a lot of work. Um, Fifty landings, you got to remember to put the gear down. You got to remember to do a bunch of little things, and and, cer- and certainly repetition uh, helps. But you know, towards you know, say the fortieth, thirty uh, fifth, or fortieth airport of the day, you're kind of like, gee, was this a really good idea? And and fatigue sets in, and and all this kind of thing, and eh, you might forget something, you might not forget something. It would be really interesting to sit down and chat with this gentleman, and uh, um, you know, just talk about what was going through your mind around thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-six airport. 
Uh, you know, were you, were you kind of questioning your parentage and, and, uh, were you, were you questioning, you know, whether or not you're sane and, and things like this, or, or were you still grooving on the whole thing and, and, uh, would you do it again? And, and, uh, all these kinds of things. It'd be quite interesting. Yeah. Cool. Uh, let's see now. My shout out is a, I don't know if this is odd or not, but uh, so one of the things I, one of the things I enjoy doing while I'm on these cross country airliner flights sitting in my window seat, um, is, is I just kind of, you know, watch the ground go by and, and I see interesting things on the ground that I think, Oh, I'd love to find that place on the ground or in a small airplane one day. And, uh, um, and this trip was no, uh, no, uh, different. Um, I actually took a whole bunch of pictures and things. And, um, the one I wanted to turn into a shout out is a shout out to the, uh, Hayes field airport in Clarksville, Maryland. So we're on, uh, we're on approach to, uh, to Baltimore and I'm just watching the ground go by. And now we're fairly low to the ground by this point, you know, I don't know, th- four, three, four, 5,000 feet and just watching the scenery go by in the farm fields. And, uh, and, and I'm watching this big strip of, uh, of, of grass fly by underneath us, and I suddenly realize that's a grass strip. And I look more closely, and I can see about uh, almost a dozen airplanes parked alongside the uh, the runway. And, and it just kind of, from the air, it looked like the the stereotypical, wonderful grassroots, you know, grass strip. And uh, I thought, oh, that looks really cool. So when I got on the ground, I, I got onto uh, Google Maps, and I backtracked, and uh, I found the field. It's about 13 miles west of of uh, Baltimore. It's called Hayes Field Airport, like I said, in Clarksville, Maryland. Um, and it's apparently privately owned and re- it requires advanced permission before you can land there. But it just looks like a, a cool little uh, little airfield. And my shout out goes to, uh, to Hayes Field Airport and uh, anybody who flies there. And, and quite frankly, if there's any listeners out there who either fly out of there or just are familiar with it, I would love to hear more about it. Um, if you wanted to send us an email or post something in the forum, Send email to a podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. And, well, I, can, uh, I can fill in a little bit of gap there. I, I have flown out of there before. You have. Tell me about yeah. it. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it. As you basically describe it, it's a nice little grass strip, privately owned. Um, there's no real facilities there. Um, <clears throat> I presume they have fuel, but it's been, a, oh, it's been a long time, quote unquote, since I was there. Uh, but, but it's um, just kind of a, a field out in the middle of a bunch of other fields. Um, and, um, just a nice little country strip. They've got one, I think one little building that's kind of the, the FBO slash office slash pilot lounge slash, uh, uh, rest area or whatever. Might have a few chairs sitting outside. Uh, but it's the perfect place, um, to spend a lazy summer afternoon watching the airplanes come and go. Yeah, that's, you know, that was my thought was this has just yeah. got to be one of the pleasantest places in the world to spend a nice su- Saturday morning, you know, um, mm-hmm. with people flying in or just hanging out or whatnot. So that's my yeah, shout I'll, out I'll, to offline. I'll tell you a story about that. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Sorry listeners, but yeah, I'm going to hear the story offline. Hayes Field Airport in Clarksville, Maryland. David, you had another one? Yeah, quickie. Uh, last weekend, uh, uh, sorry, weekend before last now, on June 4, it was my, uh, my, my honor to serve as a volunteer photographer for a group of folks from the Wichita law firm of Clenda, Mitchell, Osterman, and Zerker, LLC. Sharp young firm celebrating their 40th year uh, as a practice. Uh, they're trying to accomplish 40 acts of philanthropy as a, as, as a team effort by the law firm. Uh, last weekend, the, uh, or the weekend of, uh, of June 4, 
the uh, act of charity or philanthropy on their part was helping paint a B-47 bomber on display at the Kansas Aviation Museum here in Wichita. Uh, Dawn Patrol, bagels, cream cheese, coffee, waters, 8 a.m., they went at the fuselage of the bomber with pans and paint and rollers out in what proved to be damned hot and damned windy weather as the morning rolled on uh, because of a mechanical breakdown with some of the museum's equipment. Uh, the museum wasn't able to power wash the wings of the bomber, so the, uh, the, the, the volunteers were only able to get the empennage and the fuselage painted before they ran out of stuff that they could paint uh, waiting on the wings to get caught up on power wash and, and prepped for painting. But uh, folks did it out of their own pocket. They supplied the paint and the rollers. Uh, the, the, the bagels, the cream cheese, the coffee were all donated. And uh, uh, nice job, folks. Uh, it was a treat working with you and watching the, the zeal with which you attacked this, uh, this, this uh, icon of Cold War. Uh, it was a predecessor to the B-52, for those unfamiliar. Smaller airplanes, swept wings, uh, I think just six engines instead of eight. Uh, centerline gear, outriggers under the wings, uh, very similar to B-52. So the folks did a great job. Uh, it's not the first of their uh, efforts that I've uh, been asked to help document for them. And like all good service companies, uh, we feel compelled to contribute to this. So, so this is all pro bono on our part as well. But way to go, folks. You did a nice job. Made it shiny silver again. Very nice. Very yeah, nice. That's very cool. You, you, you confirm this was a 47 and not a B-29. 47. Because it says 29 on the, on the uh, show notes. Did I say 29? I did. And that was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> B-40... It was not Doc. It was a, uh, I, I thought it was, and we got out there, and I was corrected before we got there. It was uh, their B-47. Uh, yeah, okay. Doc was not in view. I think he's in storage. Very ni- There's a joke there. Very nice. Um, there is a joke there? I don't know. Uh, Jeb, I sort of skipped over you. Did you have a shout-out here? You no, I, I didn't. I, I was just kind of glomming on to your Hayes Field thing, and I'll glom on to, to Dave's uh, B-47 thing. Yeah. Uh, if um, you ever want to see uh, some contemporary uh, footage of, of B-47s uh, with Jimmy Stewart, uh, go get the movie Strategic Air Command. Uh, I bet you got the DVD. I do not, actually. Ooh. Uh, oh, no. uh, there it is. In, in and of itself is, is a shout-out. Uh, <laughs> uh, great, great old movie, June Allison, James Stewart, um, uh, uh, Talking about uh, basically covering the days after World War II and and uh, it's kind of the start of the Cold War. But there's some great footage in there. Some some very very old hardware B36s, B47s, um, and it's all in color and and uh, fi- fairly uh, fairly well done movie. Yeah, and 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 as a point of uh, uh, reality here, Jimmy Stewart was in the uh, Air Force Reserve at the time. That's he did. Yeah, yep. He retired that was kind of the, the Air Force Reserve as a general. That was that was sort of uh, the theme of the movie, where he, the character he played in the film, uh, was actually a, he was a baseball player, and apparently in, in, in the in the film anyway, a, a pretty good one, a fairly popular one. 
but he was also a reserve officer, and he got called up for duty and was not happy about the whole thing. Hmm. Um, and it's kind of a, a morality play on you know defending our country and, and uh, uh, service and all that kind of thing. But um, uh, the airplanes are really cool. Cool. I have to check it out. Uh, yeah, it's got some great footage in it, and uh, the little drama, you know, the little personal side of it doesn't take away from the story. Like in some movies, like, well, we won't pick on anybody today. Okay. <laughs> All right. Time to stick a fork in this one. Uh, let's see. For anybody who hasn't heard this already, Jeb Burnside uh, is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com. It's a good place to start, uh, jeburnside.com. Uh, of course, there's always uncontrolledairspace.com. Uh, um, occasionally, avweb.com and occasionally, aea.net. Very cool. And uh, I say again, Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer and an aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, let's see. avbuyer.com, aea.net, uh, or, you know, roll the dice, do a Google search, and see what I used to do. <laughs> and I'm still Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. Also, thanks to Mike Morgan uh, for uh, we he, just this past week he sent us the samples of the uh, the uh, Air Venture uh, uh, promos for for the UCAP episodes um, that are going to be uh, uh, we're going to do at uh, Oshkosh this summer. And uh, once again, he's done an excellent job at embarrassing us by. By 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 putting a mirror in front of our faces and, uh, and yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to put him on my Christmas card list or something. <laughs> He's uh, once again taken a whole bunch of miscellaneous clips and and uh, and outtakes from uh, the from the podcast and strung them together into an entertaining uh, little uh, uh, promotional bit for uh, for our uh, episodes that we're going to do while we're at uh, AirVenture. So uh, thanks to Mike for that. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? If you want to live long and get really old like Jeb, go fly, because flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's right. That's enough talking. Let's go flying. All you young whippersnappers out there, come back and see us real soon. TTFM. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.